Microphone check. One, two, three. City, city, sibilance, sibilance. Levels check. Good. Sounds good. One, two, three. Rolling and. I look at all of the people that I've made films about, Joseph Campbell, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, Ram Dass, Vanderpost, as what I call threshold characters. They have all spent their lives introducing people to their own inner life. That's what their service, that's what their contribution has been. And by doing so, they create the possibility for people to transform their own consciousness. And so that's what I make movies about. Once you find out the possibility and awaken to your own inner life, that's the best game in town. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I'm your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 133, and it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of documentary film and The Documentary Life podcast. Three years ago, I began a meditation practice. It was something I'd wanted to do, had romanticized about doing, but for one reason or another, aka laziness, I'd never been able to sustain any sort of practice. But then I heard someone speak to how mindfulness or insight meditation could actually increase creativity in artists, and as a bonus, it could increase one's daily happiness. That really caught my attention. Increase my creativity and make me happier? For the longest time, I'd been brought up to believe that one had to experience some kind of melancholy in order to be creative. But meditation and happiness? I was going to need to reconsider my prior beliefs or at the very least revisit the idea of a meditation practice. It's now been nearly 1,000 days since then, and I've long developed a daily mindful meditation practice. I participate in seminars and retreats. I geek out on podcasts about meditation. I read books, watch films on the subject. I have a goal to attend a 10-day silent retreat, also known as Vipassana, sometime before my 50th birthday. I've even begun work on a new doc project whose chief subject is a practitioner of Theravada Buddhism and insight meditation. And I can honestly say that I feel happier. Now, I'm not talking mind-blowing bliss here or anything like that, but I am able to process agitation, hurt, anger, frustration in a better, more skillful manner. And I can say without any hesitation that the increase in overall happiness and sustained meditation has most certainly led to an increase in creativity and productivity. For the uninitiated, you might be asking how meditation works in this fashion. Well, creativity doesn't really come from the normal conventions that we learned at school or work or our parents even. It's not a matter of, you know, pulling up your bootstraps and getting on with it. We cannot simply try harder or strain for it. It doesn't come from this sort of thing at all. It comes more from breaking down the internal barriers that we've built up over time and dissolving those barriers in order to get to our deep down and really ultimately our innate creative potential in order that we might best align with it and allow it to flow more freely. Now that may sound new agey or something that's easy to say, but isn't very science-based or doesn't really apply to, I don't know, normal life. So if it's science that you're looking for, 
then like they say on that amazing YouTube video about B-roll, we've got your science right here. You see, over the past decade, there have been numerous studies done that specifically measure the cognitive rigidity, try that out five times fast, cognitive rigidity, of people who meditate and their ability to not only solve problems, but also experience an increase in creativity. Research has shown that non-meditators have greater cognitive rigidity than regular meditators. That is, they're far less open to certain types of problem solving and to creative solutions to those problems. In fact, the non-meditators were applying difficult or outdated solutions to easy problems based on their own past experiences. Effectively, they were not branching out and discovering more creative thinking. And this was not the case for people who were meditators. These people were much more easily accessing creativity and higher, more skillful thinking. They were moving from older, lazier patterns and finding flow in newer, more unique creativity and problem solving. Now call me crazy, but doesn't that seem particularly helpful to us doc filmmakers? Coming up with creative ways to tell stories or solve problems without the aid of big budgets to throw at various problems that come up during the course of filmmaking. Discovering ways that are unique to us in order to create a documentary film that is unlike others that have come before. Of course, don't just take my word for it. Think about the Walt Disney Company or General Mills or Google. Companies who have all recognized and embraced the importance of meditation in helping their employees come up with creative solutions to problems. Filmmaker David Lynch has long been a proponent of the creative and emotional benefits of a meditation practice. So has national TV news presenter Dan Harris, also author and host of the 10% Happier podcast. Now Harris, who once had a well-documented panic attack on live television, attributes meditation to helping not only his anxiety issues, but his struggles with alcohol and drug abuse. Writer Bianca Rothschild says that mindfulness meditation is a great technique to learn to help improve creativity. It has side effects, which have been shown to reduce the reactivity of the reptilian brain, increase resilience, stimulate the neocortex, as well as improve emotional intelligence. All of these assist in getting ideas flowing directly to your best creative thinking brain, the neocortex. I have made a practice of meditating before conducting important interviews for my films. I sit beforehand with my thoughts and kind of go through the interview in my head. I play out how I'd like the conversation to go. I come up with what I deem to be components that are critical to advancing the story of my film. Now, I try not to write anything down during the actual meditation, but immediately afterwards, I grab a pen and paper and jot down some notes. And I'll use these notes to then construct a working document that I will use to conduct the interview. Of course, I don't always meditate in this fashion. I don't always focus on a project or problem in the same way in which I might do for preparing for an interview. Sometimes I just sit and try and focus on my breathing or maybe some of the sounds that are around me. Again, I just try and sit, right? But I don't fight the thoughts that may come up. And of course, they do come up. Because of course, unless you're His Holiness the Dalai Lama, you're going to have thoughts come up. It's just how you deal with those thoughts that is the essence of a mindful meditation practice. I simply let them happen. I acknowledge them. And then I move on from the thought. I let it go. 
I let thoughts go, in order that I might clear the mind again, like cleansing the palate with ginger as I eat fantastic plates of sushi, which, by the way, I did last night, the first time we've done this since the pandemic began. Creatives will often say that they simply don't have time for meditation. Well, I would say that meditation doesn't so much take time as much as it saves time, or even better, it makes time. I have two doc films that I'm working on. I have my freelance work. I have this podcast. I have the mastermind group. We have two kids, ages four and six, that now, thanks to this time of COVID, are around us 24-7. But I have made it a practice of getting up before everyone else does, usually around 5.15 in the morning, to go for my run, come back and shower, eat breakfast, then meditate. All of this before Steph and the kids wake up around 7. I've made this a priority in my life. I have learned that it is important enough to exercise and meditate that I'm willing to get up nearly two hours before everyone else to ensure that it happens. And I have to tell you, It has greatly increased my productivity, creativity, and yes, even my happiness. Meditation is a doorway between our inner and outer worlds, between what we often refer to as reality, you know, this world in which we experience the five senses, and another world that lies just within. It lies beneath, between, and beyond what the reality senses can readily access. Meditation offers massive benefits for everyone and a set of particular benefits for those of us engaged in this creative activity we call doc filmmaking. Now, what about you, doc lifer? Do you take the time out for meditation? Have you seen any of these benefits from your own practice? Are there benefits that you've experienced that maybe we should know about? If so, please consider sharing these thoughts on our new topic forum that can be found at The D Word, the leading doc filmmaking community that we've recently partnered up with in an effort to get our podcast out to as many doc filmmakers as possible. I am over the moon about this partnership. It's a natural fit, an appropriate collaboration between two important elements of the greater doc community. And I look forward to sharing more about this partnership as we progress in this season of the show. For now, just know that I am facilitating an open and engaging conversation about new episodes of the podcast over at The D Word, a place that now has around 20,000 members, all doc filmmakers, including some of the industry's most well-known. So I highly recommend getting involved in this community and sharing your thoughts on this and future episodes of the podcast. Now, the web address to use is d-word.com. That's d-word.com. I'd love to see you there. And more than that, I'd be elated to see you there. I'll need all of the love and support I can get in these early days in order to make the Documentary Life podcast forum really come to life. So please do come say hi. All right. After a quick break, we'll get right to our conversation with doc filmmaker Mickey Lemley, a man who has made his living making films about some of the brightest, most connected, and most compassionate human beings on the planet. And that conversation is, as you know, just around the corner, here on The Documentary Life. Hey Doc Lifer, I'd like to ask a quick favor. 
It'll take you no more than a few minutes, I promise. And it's super simple too. I'm asking you to give a rating and review of the podcast by going to iTunes, hopefully giving us five stars, and writing a sentence on what you like about the show. This helps us with the iTunes algorithm and gets the podcast out to more people like yourself who can benefit from it. If you feel that you indeed have gotten something from this show, we'd love you to pay it forward to new listeners. And of course, it helps us too. And if you do this in the month of June, we'll even sweeten the pot a little. Simply take a screenshot of your rating and review and email it to me at chris at barongfilms.com. That's chris at b-a-r-a-n-g films.com. And you'll be automatically entered into a draw for a free 30-minute doc film consultation with yours truly. And there are two of these free one-on-one consultations that I'll be giving away. So make sure that you get your rate and review in by the end of June for a chance to win. And in advance, thank you for your support. Producer-director Mickey Lemley has been making feature films, television series, and documentary specials since 1971. In 1982, he founded Lemley Pictures, Incorporated. His film and television works have been shown theatrically on television and at film festivals around the world. Lemley has made documentary films with some of the world's most renowned intellectuals and spiritual leaders, including the likes of Ram Dass, Sir Lawrence van der Post, and the 14th Dalai Lama. He is best known for documentary films like Ram Dass, Fierce Grace, and The Last Dalai Lama. Mickey, first and foremost, welcome to the program. Very excited to have you joining us today on The Documentary Life. Thank you. Good to be here. I have to admit, right at the outset, my first question that I want to ask is, uh, maybe it's a little bit uh, of self-interest. I saw that you had done some Peace Corps work in Nepal, and Nepal is one of the special places in my life. It it happens to be the place where I directed my first documentary film. Uh, I'm curious, how did your turn in the Peace Corps in Nepal inform your interest in documentary and certainly ultimately Tibet? Well, I um, was already making films. I started actually halfway through college. Okay. And um, by the time I graduated, I had had uh, films on PBS, CBS, NBC. uh, And my hope was to make films in the Peace Corps, which uh, they they had a problem with. But but Nepal was great. You know, I, I, I had been to Asia when I turned 18. Yeah. I traveled all around Asia with a friend. I was uh, totally taken with it, uh, drawn to it. Yeah. So I decided that when I graduated from college, I wanted to join the Peace Corps and I wanted to go to an Asian country that had never been colonized by a Western power. Ah, indeed. And that there's only two, Nepal and Thailand. Yeah. At that time in the late 60s, Thailand was filled with hundreds of thousands of Marines because it was the height of the Vietnam War. Right. So I applied for Nepal, and through some accident in government bureaucratic methods, I got it. Yeah, I was in a little village in the eastern hills, uh, just on the border of uh, Darjeeling, where the tea oh, comes from. My village, Elam, was where the, the, all the tea in Nepal was grown at the time. It was half Hindu and half Buddhist, and I was just immersed in it. And 
it's like one 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 night there was a family that lived below me that I ate dinner with, and yeah. one night the grandmother was building the fire and she threw rice in and said a prayer. The ama. <laughs> and I said, "Why why do you do that?" And she said, she looked at me like I was the village idiot, <laughs> and said, "Because we always do that when we build the fire to make dinner. You know, it was like <laughs> there was no like this wafer represents the body of Christ. It, there's no interpretation. It's yeah. just." practice this is culturally what we do you know this is come on, you idiot this is what you do you know so one day i saw these people walking through and they they didn't look like you know my guys the, 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 my village friends yeah and i said who are they and and uh, i was having tea at a tea shop and they said oh those are tibetans yeah and so it was there that um i met tibetans and then i i went to the refugee camp in darjeeling and wow. out of Kathmandu. yeah i found out I heard their stories about the atrocities that were going on that in 1969, I, I'd never heard about. Right. Right. You know, have been devoted to the cause of Tibetan freedom ever since. And it was, uh, it was what inspired my eventually making the first major movie about the Dalai Lama right. in 1992 called compassion in exile. Right. So at its heart, Mickey, I think that doc filmmaking is about exploration. It's about seeking. And you have taken on uh, multiple times subjects as seekers. And as a result of this, you ended up filming some of the world's uh, most connected, most empathic, intelligent spiritual beings. How have your doc films been about perhaps your own explorations? Well, let me back up for one second. Um, Only some documentarians treat the process of making a documentary as a process of exploration. Right. Um, there, there are other filmmakers like say Michael Moore hmm. who knows what he feels about health insurance or gun control or whatever hmm. the subject is of his movies. Hmm. He already has his opinion about it. Yeah. And then he films people that support his, his, uh, his feelings or like his he, thesis. Yeah. Thesis, or he has people that refutes it and then he ridicules them if he can. And, 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 you know, it's said that there are people that, write about what they know, and then there are people that write to find out what they know. Yeah. yeah. And so I treat the process, all of the, the process of all of my documentaries start with my own curiosity. It's right. like I want to find out more about something. Exactly. And so um, like when I first met the Dalai Lama in uh, 1984, uh, somebody asked him if he hated the Chinese. Yeah. And he said, no, I, I don't really hate them. He said, sometimes I lose patience with them. Um, uh, he said, but I don't have any hatred feelings. As a matter of fact, every day, part of my practice is to do an exchange where I take on their ignorance, their anger, their violence, and I mentally return to them love and compassion. Right. So I was curious. I said, okay, how do you do that? If he can do that with the Chinese, maybe I can learn how to do that with my sister. <laughs> and so... So it's that kind of curiosity that started that the process of doing the, the first uh, film about him. Yeah. Um, as I said, as well as feeling that this would be the best way to tell the story of Tibet. Right. Uh, so I think that, you know, it's very, for me, I start with curiosity. I want to find out more about something. Yeah. And I start from a gut level. It, it, it hits me in my gut. It's like, I, I, I want to find out about this. My, my films have been called sp- spiritual Yes. I, I don't call them that. I, 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 
for me, all of my films are about human transformation. Yeah. Because I figure um, without transformation, without the possibility for human transformation, the world is going to be just as dreary tomorrow as it was today. Mm. But if you enter into the equation, the possibility for transformation and the transformation of consciousness, then perhaps there's a small possibility that our species has some hope. Right. But, it, but it's going to require transformation of consciousness. And so all of my movies are about that. Now, here's the problem. Uh, human transformation is an internal event that happens inside mm. of someone's mind and heart. And film, by its very nature, is about external action. And so yeah. my challenge throughout my career has been to find stories that are metaphoric of internal change, but externally filled with uh, action. Yeah. And so I made a movie about the men who went to the moon and what happened to them spiritually on their journeys and then what happened in the 20 years after in their lives. Yeah. So, you know, for, for people that are on a path and are ready to awaken, there's information hidden in all of my movies that yeah. will help them on their journeys. Yeah. If not, it's just a really well-told story. And it's yeah. more interesting probably than anything else that's on cable that night. Right, right. But I don't, I don't preach. I don't preach. I don't, I don't try to send a message. Mm. Just try to share human ex the story of human experience. And maybe we can dig a little, little deeper into that. Um, I like that you mentioned that, of course, uh, uh, a number of, of people uh, consider your film work as spiritual films, right? And there are some pretty woo-woo, if you will, spiritual films that are out there that, for lack of a better word, they come across as a bit, dare I say, cheesy or a bit too new agey. So they end up turning a lot of people away. They, they, they really are only watched, I think, by a very select few people. Talk a little bit more about how you make your films that deal in spirituality and, and a spiritual practice and transformation, as you've said, and how you make that accessible to a wider audience. Well, for instance, when, if I'm interviewing somebody, hmm. one of these great, great minds or great beings on the planet, and they say something that's like a universal truth about human experience, and it just, it just, you hear it and you think, oh my God, that's fabulous. Yeah. I, want, I, want to, I want to write that down and, and put it on my refrigerator and start yeah. every day yeah. with that thought in mind. And, and, well, wait. As a matter of fact, I know my friend who does calligraphy, I'm going to have them do it really fancy and then <laughs> put it on my refrigerator. Yeah. And so you do that, and it's some great universal truth about human experience. Yeah. And you, you look at it the first morning, you think, God, that's great. <laughs> and the second morning you go, I need the cream for my tea. You know? I, and and the, the fact is, it's not grounded it's just nice sounding you know it's like Kahil Gibran's the prophet it's, it's it's just lovely sounding yeah yeah thoughts chicken soup for the soul <laughs> yeah any of those new agey books yeah you know with with aphorisms and stuff mm. so what I do is I'm not I'm not seduced when I hear those kind of statements mm. my follow-up question is always and when did that occur to you in your life yeah it's like I, I root the thought in human experience because that everybody can relate to. It's mm. like, and also I don't make movies about issues. Like I don't, you know, uh, I, I, I don't. 
I make uh, I make movies about human journeys and human experience. Right. Because if somebody is telling you what is true for them, you can't say no. It's not. That's not true. I mean, mm -hmm. if I if I make any kind of political statement, there's half the people on the other side will say that's not true and and have a counter argument. Mm -hmm. If I talk to you about what my deep personal experience is, you can't say that's not true. Right. Right. So. And, 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 I, and I, I do believe that everyone has within them an honest witness that kind of vibrates when somebody on the screen or in person is, is sharing with them some deep personal truth about the reality of their existence. Mm -hmm. and, and, and as I, as I've been very fortunate to be able to sit across from, you know, His Holiness the Dalai Lama or Joseph Campbell or Ram Dass or, or the men who went to the moon or, or yeah. Salorn Vanderpost. And uh, the other thing I'll mention is the, the bonus for me is it's not just sitting across from them during the times that I interview them, you know, mm. the, for, for the movie. Then I go back and I sit in the editing room and watch them talking about these issues over and over again for yeah. six or eight months. Yeah. Yeah. And so every, and, and I, and I treat the editing process as a meditation because I, uh, before, before the, the editor hits the go, the forward button, yeah. I empty because I need to see the footage as if it's for the first time Yeah, and put myself in the place of the audience who's going to be seeing it for the first time. Mm -hmm. And so I empty and then I watch it. And so I spend my days meditating on the thoughts of these great beings about the very issues that might keep me awake at three in the morning about mortality and compassion and the meaning of life. And, and I meditate, I spend all my days meditating on this for eight hours a day for months. Right. right. So right. It's, it's not just the time that I spend doing the actual interviews. And I think that uh, the great Walter Murch would very much agree with um, this idea of editing, by the way, as, as meditation. Um, and uh, as someone who came up through an editing background myself, I would wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, it is absolutely a, a both a meditation and a, and a dance, I think. You know, you mentioned that your, your films uh, don't have an overtly, uh, perhaps, a political agenda. And I think... Um, Great examples of this are compassionate. Your films, compassionate in exile, um, the first time you, you spent time filming with with His Holiness, uh, as well as you know, twenty twenty five years later when you did the Last Dalai Lama. Um, of course, the uh, Chinese incursion into Tibet and what happened there is is a part of the background. It's a part of the context, but I never really found it particularly. Um, overtly political when when i first finished compassion in exile i sent yeah. it down to, to pbs and, and i had been making movies for pbs for for several decades at that point mm. so I, I get a call from somebody um who said we have a little problem with your journalism and i said uh what time tomorrow afternoon can i come meet you and i took the train down i said uh what's the problem that you have with my journalism and they said, you didn't give the Chinese point of view equal attention. Right. right. And I said, being Jewish, I have a very hard time making a case for genocide. And which she missed completely. And, and, and then I, I said to her, I said, look, I don't make movies about issues. It's not Tibet and China. 
Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's the story of one individual human being and his journey. That's what the movie is. It's not, you know, it's, there might be political implications, but it's not a, 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 I don't make movies about issues. Yeah. No. Um, I just tell stories about individual human journeys. Right. That are metaphoric for all of our potentiality. I, I look at all of the, the people that I've made films about, Joseph Campbell, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, Ram Dass, Vanderpost, um, as what I call threshold characters. It's mm. like they have all uh, spent their, their lives introducing people to their own inner life. Yeah. And so they, they, that's, that's what their, that's what their service, that's what their contribution has been. Yeah. And by doing so, they create the possibility for people to transform their own con consciousness by, by example. And, and so that's what I make movies about. It's, I, you know, I mean, yeah. there, there are other people that are better equipped to make movies about, you know, China, the, you know, the, the, the Chinese uh, century that's coming or that is, yeah. you know, it, it's, I'd much rather find, you know, some closet Taoist up in, in, uh, on a sacred mountain, you yeah. know, yeah. who managed to make it through the cultural revolution, yeah. you know, and, and tell his story or her story. Yeah. Yeah. Once you find out the possibility and, and awaken to your own inner life, that's the best game in town. As Ramda says, it's the only dance there is. You know, once you've tasted of that, you know, the, the other stuff is disposable, really. Yeah. There's a great quote uh, by Philip Glass that I'd like to read. And this, of course, was in uh, uh, the more recent film, The Last Dalai Lama. And, and, and Philip said, I really feel there's a deep connection between mind training and artistic creation. Could you talk to us about perhaps your own spiritual and or meditation practice and how you would say this has impacted your creativity, your work? Well, um, I do meditate every day Yeah. Um, for 20 minutes in the morning. I, I did it off and on um, for about, I don't know, 20 years. Uh, I would always do it before a shooting day. Yeah. Shooting days, as you know, are, can be very hectic because in a documentary world, you, you think you know what's going to happen, and then it doesn't. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> you might have fifteen people all asking you questions at the same time, and and so it's it's very important to be present. Yeah. You know, it's really about being present and seeing where the energy is in whatever situation you're in. Yeah. And um, so I would always meditate before shooting day, and you know, when it, when I was upset or whatever, and then when I was um, separating from my most recent ex-wife, I, I met with Ramdas, who had actually married us. Wow. And he asked me, he said, yeah, how are you and Beth doing? And I said, well, <laughs> well. we're separating. And, and we talked for like an hour and a half. And he, he's a very good listener, you know. He, he just mainly listened. And at the end, he said the single wisest thing that anybody ever said during that difficult period. He said two things. One is he said, you can't be with, in a relationship with someone else and want them to be anything other than exactly who they are, or else you're going to create violence. So that was the first thing. And the second thing he said was, do you meditate? And I said, well, yeah, I've been doing it off and on, yeah. you know, for 20 years. He yeah. said, I, I, I would advise you to do it every day now. Yeah. And, and it, it, it absolutely got me through the whole divorce process. And, um, 
and I've been doing it, you know, every day since. Speak a little bit more to the uninitiated, right? Speak to the doc filmmaker as if you wanted to, you know, you wanted them to consider a meditation practice. How would you say it would help them on a personal level and then perhaps on a creative level, professional level? Great, great question. Thanks for that. Um, whenever I speak to film students, yeah. um, whether they ask or not, I tell them the one thing that I think is essential, the most important thing I can impart to them, which is you must be willing to let go of your preconceived ideas. Yeah. You don't have to do it, but you have to be willing to do it. Because real life is always more interesting than your idea about how it's supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. You know? And, and, and real humans are more interesting than who you think they ought to be f to make you happy. Mm. And, and the thing is about a film is like, and, you, and, and, and I say to them, you must be willing to do this at every phase of, of the uh, filmmaking process. So you start out, you, you have to start with an idea of what you want to make the movie about. You can't say, gee, I really want to make a movie about life. I mean, wh where do you point the camera? It's everywhere. <laughs> so you have to be a little more specific. So you pick an, you, you, you have an idea. I want to make a movie about whatever. And then you start, I, I'm a firm believer in, in, in research and, and a, a big research period mm -hmm. where, you, where you start to find out more and more about whatever the, the thing is that you're making the movie about. Yeah. And what you find out about is that maybe your preconceived ideas are not as deep and as, as uh, deep a human uh, issue as your idea about it, that yeah. there's actually deeper and deeper levels of things going on that you might not have thought of initially. So you have to let go of your preconceived idea and follow the research. When I interview people for like a pre-interview, mm. I, ne I never have a notebook or a pad or, or a, a tape recorder. I just, I just chat like we're having tea. Mm. We, we sit and, we, and it's a very informal conversation. Mm-hmm. Then I say goodbye, I get in my car, I drive around the corner, stop, and next to on the passenger seat, there's a pad and a pen. Yeah. And I write down all of the great stuff that I remember that the person said during our, our interview. Of course, there's the fear that you're going to forget the great stuff. Oh, right? I would, yeah, that's, yeah, that would be my biggest fear. So a number of years ago, there was an interview in the Sunday Times magazine section with Marshall Brickman, who had co-written... Annie Hall with Woody Allen. And he said their process was he would come to Woody's apartment in the, in the morning and they would walk up and down Lexington Avenue trying to make each other laugh. And then they would go back to Woody's apartment. They'd write down all the great stuff that, that they had said during the walk, have lunch and, and spend the afternoon writing. Yeah. And the viewer said to Marshall Brickman, weren't you afraid that you'd forget the really great stuff? And he just said, you never forget the really great stuff, right? right you know, right. So, so I take these these things that I, I write down and I, I put them on four by six cards and I put them on the biggest piece of foam core that I can fit into my room. Yeah, and put them on and I start to look for the structure of the film, and I basically structure the film with things that I need and what I like. Uh, for instance, um, I knew that. In, the, in Compassion and Exile, one of the, the, the key moment, the, the exciting incident, if you will, in Hollywood terms, that of the, 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 the journey of His Holiness's life, mm. leaving Tibet and going into exile. Yeah. 
And so I knew that I had to have that. And I knew from my pre-interviews that he told a good story about it. His younger brother told a good story about it, that there was existing 16 millimeter footage of actually of them going on horseback. Incredible. Yeah. And, and then the, his main bodyguard um, had to, he, he was to, to leave the palace. Uh, he had to be disguised as a soldier. So he had a gun on one one shoulder, this Tonka that goes with the Dalai Lama every place he goes on the other shoulder. And he couldn't wear his glasses because it was too identifying a feature. This bodyguard held his hand as he had to walk across the stream. And anyway, so I knew that I I wanted all of those things. Well, so I had to had the associate producer track down who had the rights to the footage and where I could get it. Um, And then I when I interviewed His Holiness, uh, on camera, I asked him about leaving Tibet, and I asked his younger brother. I could never get an interview with the, the bodyguard, mm. but I knew that I that that was a section. Okay, so I basically have a structure for the documentary. I know what the flow is, but then you get into real life, you start filming, and it changes. So you have to be willing to let go of what you thought the sequence was going to be about, and see what's really happening in front of you. Yeah. Then I feel like. You know, you, you hear about ancient tribes of, of indigenous people that believe that the camera captures your soul. Yeah, yeah. And it's absolutely true. It does. It captures everything that is present in that moment mm-hmm. when the photograph is taken. So so photographs are like a, 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 a capturing of the present. So even if you look at a Matthew Brady photo from the Civil War, you are looking at the present of that moment mm. that the photograph was taken. It's not historical or old. I mean, it is because it's, you know, you're 100 years later to whatever. But but the photograph is of the present moment. And I believe that, that the camera captures your absolute reality in that moment of, mm. of, of your whole being. And so, so when you're when so when I'm looking at the footage, I then have to let go of my preconceived ideas of what I thought I filmed and be open to what is really right just in front of me. In front of you. Yeah. And, and, and so that's why meditation really helps because as I said, before the editor turns the, 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 the the machine on and the footage runs, I empty and I just look at it as if it's for the first time. Mm. So, so meditations really for me is about being present. It's just being absolutely present with what is. And if you're going to be a documentary filmmaker, um, that's the best thing you can do is be present yeah. when, when you're filming to see what's really going on, to follow the energy, even if it's not what your preconceived idea is. Yeah. And, and this, is, this goes for documentary filmmaking, but it's also a really good couple's advice. You know, it's like, try to see the other human being as a human being and not your idea of who they're supposed to be to make you happy. Yeah. But anyway, so, so then in the editing process, that's when I have to keep being present and emptying. And so I know a lot of filmmakers by the 1000th time they've seen a sequence, yeah. they're mouthing in their head, they're saying the words that the oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. is saying, and they know every nuance and everything. And I try to get past that and just see it as if it's for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and if you do that, then the whole process of editing becomes the process of discovery of, as I said, deeper and deeper levels of human experience that you might not have even thought of when you started the process Mm. originally. 
we all of us, all of us think that the voice that we hear inside of our head is telling us the truth. Everybody does, right? Oh yeah. oh, yeah. And the fact is, it's really not the truth. It's a projection of our mind onto phenomenon. Right. It's our mind creating our reality. And what we all do is, every, uh, science has said that 90% of the thoughts you had today, you had yesterday. So we keep running over the same thoughts. Same over narrative, over same over thoughts. The same narrative, yeah. same labeling. Yeah. And 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 it becomes our re that becomes our reality. Yeah. Because of, of egocentricity, we think it is the yeah. reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's not. It's just it's just our mind projecting onto phenomenon, creating our sense of a re of a reality. Yeah. And the best antidote to that, and the best way to expand your consciousness is to become aware of how you're doing that. And the best way that I know of doing that is through meditation, where yeah. you sit and you empty and you watch thoughts rise. And instead of engaging them, saying, you know, like, oh, that, that person's a jerk. Yeah, I always felt that, you know. Instead of that, you just say, oh, there's a thought. And you just let it go, like, like clouds on a windy day. And then another thought arises. And you, uh, you say, oh, thought, and let it go. And you keep doing that until you... And it's called a practice because you practice this. Yeah. And over time, two things happen. One is you stop taking the thoughts as your reality. So for instance, if you go to the doctor, you don't say to the doctor, I am a sore throat. You say, but you do say to yourself, I am really depressed or I am really angry. So that single emotion becomes your whole being. Yeah. And so what meditation does is allows you, it puts a little air around that. And it allows you to, instead of saying, I am depressed, you say, oh, I feel depression rising in me today. Or instead of saying, I'm really angry, you say, oh, I feel anger rising in me. So that you don't become the emotion. Yeah. And it doesn't become your reality. In, in, and, and when it does, sometimes you can actually create violence in a way that you don't really want to. Right. So, so that's the first thing is that you start to observe them rather than become the affect of them. But the second thing that happens is you start to identify with the witness to the thoughts and not to the thoughts themselves. Right. And, and, and so you, you can see how your thoughts are creating your reality about any given situation mm -hmm. and not plunging into it as if it is the reality. Mm. And so that's why, I, aside from just making you a better filmmaker, it makes you a better human being. This was everything I was hoping for in a conversation with you, Mickey, and, and so much more. So Mickey, what, if anything, do you feel like perhaps we haven't gotten to in this conversation that you'd like doc filmmakers to know? Well, people often tell me that, for instance, my movies about the, in, in my movies about the Dalai Lama or Ram Dass, that they come across so human and so personal. And there is a technique to this. For instance, when, when I go to do an interview with somebody, I write out all the questions that I want to ask them. And I really work backwards. I figure, what, what is it that I want them to talk about? And then I figure out what questions would yield those answers in, in those areas. And I, I go over them many times. Uh, the, the, the list of questions. But when I get into the actual interview, I, I look, the, the more, let's say the morning of the interview, 
while the uh, the crew is setting up the lights or, or you know setting up the equipment. I'll review the questions, and then when the subject comes and sits down across from me, I put the pad away and just talk to them. I just have a conversation, and I always follow the energy of the conversation. So if they say something that I hadn't anticipated, like well that occurred to me when I was you know, sailing solo around the world. And I say, oh, tell me about sailing solo around the world. And and so follow the energy, always follow the energy in a conversation. And then when it, when it's time to change cards or change tapes, I'll, I'll stop and, and go through the list of questions and see which ones have I've covered. But that way it's much more conversational. Another thing that I do is I never ask the subject of an interview what they think about something. Uh, because that places the question in their intellect and the answer will come from there. So rather, I say, well, what, what, did, what did you feel at that time? For instance, with the astronauts who went to the moon, instead of saying, were you scared? I said, tell me about a time you felt fear. And if you ask the question in that way, it puts it in story time. Tell, it's like, tell me a story about that. The idea here being sort of intellectual versus emotional. Yes, because you want that if they respond from an emotional place, that's where it's going to hit the audience in, in their emotions. And really, movies are just condensed emotion, even documentaries, even so-called, you know, informational documentaries are really a, a, emotional. Sometimes it's like we're, we're like magicians. We'll wave the right hand of information, but with the left hand, secretly, we're dealing with people's emotions. So, Mickey, as we do kind of wrap up here, let us know how we can see your films, number one. And number two, I understand that you uh, you have a book in the making. Um, when and how will we be able to see that? And again, your films as well as your book, please. So all of my films are available to be streamed through my website, which is lemleypictures.com. Yeah. L-E-M-L-E pictures.com. And you can, you can download any, any of the films. Um, I also have a book coming out, which is Advice to Young Filmmakers. I'm looking for a publisher now. I will hopefully be able to get like a sign-up sheet on my website so that when the book comes out, yeah. it'll become available to anybody who's interested. It's, 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 it's done in very short chapters and with uh, like little vignettes like I, I shared today and, and then some more specific ones about... Uh, some of the conversations I had with the Dalai Lama or Joseph Campbell or Ram Dass or, or any of these great luminaries. Sign me up. <laughs> Sounds absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today on The Documentary Life. Thanks, Chris. You're a very good interviewer, and I know what I'm talking about. Yes, you certainly do. I take that as a high compliment coming from you. Take care. Stay safe. You as well. Now, don't forget, if you enjoy the podcast and you'd like the opportunity to win a free 30-minute doc film consultation with me, head on over to iTunes and write us a rate and review. Email me a screenshot of the rate and review to my email, chris at barongfilms.com. Again, that's chris at b-a-r-a-n-g films.com. Thanks again. We'll see you next episode.